I'm James. And I'm Brian. And this is Spamming Zero. Welcome to Spamming Zero, everybody. We have a great guest today. Liza Landsman, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. I am really excited for this discussion today. So for those that don't know, and I would imagine that unless my parents and family are listening to the show, none of you know, <laughs> um, me and Liza have a very strong personal connection through my family. And you were the very first person that I ever heard of with the title of chief customer officer. Huh. And... I didn't have any idea. I mean, there was a lot that I didn't understand back in 2017, but had no idea what that meant. And it is something that has totally come into style and has totally like become relevant to our business and what we are doing. And obviously for you, that was at jet.com, which evolved into Walmart. So really excited to dive into what that whole experience was like today, as well as kind of wherever this lovely conversation goes, but really happy to have you on the show. You were on my short list of first invites when we uh, decided <laughs> we were going to do this. So looking forward to it. Great. I'm delighted to be here. Always nice to know my made up title. What's exciting for you? <laughs> <laughs> Brian, Liza being the very first person that you've known that was a chief customer officer just tells me how young you are. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's very fair. That's, that's very fair. It is way more in style now than it was though. Oh yeah. Like it's like a thing now. I see it a lot. Yeah, no, it, it's very true. I mean, in fact, when I was joining jet, I don't even remember what the initial title was that they were talking to me about, but I was running among other things, marketing and product. And the guy who's the head of product there, who is amazing, um, this guy, Carl Steven Smith, was basically like, you seem really cool, but I can't report to anybody who has marketing in their title. So like, let's not do that. And I was like, huh, well, I've got all this stuff to touch as the customer. Like, what about that? And he was like, yeah, I, I'm down with that. So I would love to tell you I was prescient in trend setting, but I was <laughs> solving for the happiness of my team. So, so you guys collectively kind of came up with that title and then went to whoever and said, are, are we okay with, with this as the title and got a sign off? Yeah. Mark was like, does that mean you're saying yes? Okay, cool. <laughs> it's interesting because I think the same kind of thing has happened with the title of CXO now, Chief Experience yeah. Officer. It kind of started in the same fashion that you just explained. I think there's a lot of people out there that had the same, maybe similar experience as you at that executive level. I think that's right. I mean, I do also think, you know, all like kidding and flippancy aside, like there has been a real awakening to like for a lot of companies, particularly those that touch consumers or that touch customers, regardless of the flavor of customer. There's, you know, for many people, whether you're in the software business or something else, like the experience is the product. And so there's a little bit of a, oh, maybe we should actually pay attention to this as opposed to it'll all kind of happen in the ether and it's all good. And so I think sometimes, I mean, it's in the same way, like you used to see chief HR officers and now it's like chief people and chief talent. And some of that is semantics, but I think some <laughs> of it is actually an underlying shift in how people think about the importance of the 
of a category or a functional leader. And sometimes it goes too far. A board that I sit on spends a lot of time talking about human capital. And like that phrase makes me extremely uncomfortable. Yeah, um, I heard that one. But, <laughs> Same but I kind of I get where it's coming from. So obviously you have since now evolved into your role as a VC. I'm curious how, like, do things related to the customer experience and and the metrics that are often kind of associated with customer experience, like how prevalent is that in your conversations with founders uh, and kind of your like diligence on a business? Like how much, like what is the lens that you look through from the VC perspective on it? A lot of those metrics are extremely important. I mean, it depends a little bit on sector and stage, but NPS is extremely important, particularly in early stage companies where like you don't have tons of longitudinal data to look at on retention. And so NPS becomes this highly important indicator and predictor of product market fit. I think we look a lot at broadly, if it's not a consumer company where there's NPS, we look at CSAT among customers to kind of suss out, like have these people built a product or an experience that actually is sustainable and has longevity. So that's really important. A huge part of our diligence process, particularly on companies that are in the B2B space is talking to existing clients. Like that's a huge part of the process because we can look at the metrics of the business and obviously that's table stakes are like those being healthy and moving in the right direction. But the best way for us to understand whether or not customers are really loyal and how they perceive a product or a platform or solution versus its competitors is to talk to the customers and we always do that. We often also talk to people who have attrited or people who are prospects to kind of get a better read of the market and what are the sort of key decision criteria. So that end-to-end -end customer experience, whether it's a consumer business where we're looking at NPS, cohort retention data, we'll read reviews online. We'll do the same thing on the B2B side and that's because great companies, it's sort of come out of people really responding to product in a positive and enduring way. And snapshot metrics alone don't give you that data. Here's the other thing, Liza, is like, I'm a marketer, right? So like, I know, like, that you can game some of that. Very brave of you to say that in public. I know. I <laughs> uh, you, you can game a lot of that stuff and a lot of those metrics. Well, of course, I've never done that, but I understand other <laughs> Of course, right? Sure. I love the fact that from your VC lens, like you're looking at this from like, oh, we actually go talk to customers and we hear them. Like a good example of this is that I sit on a board of a company that does like they're a gifting platform. I won't say their name, um, but there were some situations that were happening in like during the pandemic that had a huge impact on a lot of customers, but their reviews still were showing amazing things. Their NPS was still showing amazing things. But then if you dove into it and you started talking to their customers, like there was big issues. And I think that that's some, one of those things that you can't really identify all of the big challenges that people might have. And I think especially like, I think one of the reasons why Brian might be bringing this, this actual question into, into the table is like, we, we've been talking to so many people recently that sit in the e-com space that um, are trying to figure out how to make sure that, you know, their tech, especially as it relates to 
customer service and customer experience is not cut right now, right? Because there's a lot of cuts that are happening in, in the economy. So um, what's your advice to them? Outside of these metrics and looking at these things that really matter, what's your advice to them on where their focus can be so that these things aren't cut? A lot of this is going to be very situational on stage, sector, nature of business. But one of the things that could come back to is something you and I've talked about before, which is a lot of people approach solving the problem of increasing cost efficiency by starting with increasing cost efficiency and then backing into, well, how do we make that as painless as possible for customers versus starting by saying, how do we maintain the best possible experience and then re-engineer costs around that experience. And there's a, it's a really important difference in how you think, like what your priorities are, but also like actually how you solve the problem. Because, you know, you could say, it would be great. We can, you know, fire every human being we have that does customer service and support and automate a hundred percent of what we do and we get a real cost efficiency. And there are a few companies where that would actually work, but in most instances, it's some combination of software automation and places where like human touch matters. And so kind of understanding what those, not to use this cliche, but like moments of truth are for your customers and then saying like, okay, so how do we deploy our humans at those moments that require judgment that automation and routing can't solve for? So we're kind of like using that resource that's super precious and super expensive in the most valuable ways and let everything and figure out everything else where it's a better experience automated and actually understanding your customer's journey and what their both their decision points are on purchase but also what their critical moments are in servicing you know which of those things falls into which bucket i think is the right way to organize your thoughts around it there are lots of ways to drive efficiency that also actually improve experience. But if you don't know what your customer's journey actually is, you don't know what those things are. I mean, this is a terrible example and it's going way back into the weeds for me. But years ago, um, I ran part of the inbound call centers at City, And one of the calls that we used as like a training example was somebody calling in for a credit line increase to pay for their mother's funeral services. Now this person was like over their credit limit or like at their credit limit. And if we had done that purely through automation, the logic would have told you like, do not do this increase. But when a human being with a lot of data that was in, like enabled by the desktop saw like this person with like good repayment history, been with us a long time, saying no in this like really painful moment of truth is going to be like super bad for a long-term relationship with a customer. Like those are the kinds of things where you want to, you know, effectively like pop that out of the queue as opposed to like fully automate that whole experience end to end. So I would say think about automation, AI and intelligence kind of gets you to the 95th yard line and then sort of common sense and a little human intervention gets you gets you that last 5 yards into the end zone. That is my one sports analogy ever. So <laughs> I hope you it. One of the things that's interesting here is like, I almost wonder, right, this, this like renewed focus on, on the customer experience and that being like a thing that needed management and needed like care and love and 
it is in a lot of ways tied to the product, but goes right the product. They they influence each other, but they're also different. It's kind of like yeah. that overlapping Venn diagram. And I wonder how much of that, and I'm asking both of you as as the marketers in the room, like how much of that is almost like a a problem generated by all of the like digital marketing automation and all of these different ways in which you can just go crazy touching customers and you got this person managing this tool and that person's managing that and this is happening over here i think some of that is probably causal but i would also say the fact that more and more stuff is sold digitally it's not the fact of automated digital marketing it is the fact that regardless of whether you're in a consumer business e-commerce or retail business although it's acutely true for those categories or even like software lead gen, like a lot more of it happens at arm's length now, as opposed to like hand to hand selling. Like it's very different to think about customer support in a world where people buy sofas online they've never sat on versus 15 years ago, there wasn't a sofa in America or very few that were sold without someone sitting on it, measuring it, knowing it would fit in their apartment. And so now like, a lot of the things that maybe were happening from an experiential, like the extension of product into experience was happening pre-purchase. Mm. And now a lot of that stuff is just happening at a different part of the cycle. And so customer service and customer experience teams have to handle a whole host of questions, and like post-purchase issues that just didn't exist before. Like if you had sat on a sofa before, you'd know whether the material was scratchy or not, but you don't know until it's in your apartment now. So it's almost like the people that ran the customer experience were the people that were in all of the stores where all of the goods were sold. And yeah. it might, may, may or may not have been operating under that title, but they owned it. Yeah. Look, it's just in a way, it's just like a shift of geography of where lots of different parts of the customer experience are happening. I mean, you think about it. Like the experience you had walking into a retail environment before where like there was a scent that had been cured, like curated specifically for the store. There's lighting. McDonald's French fries. Bath and Body Works is what gets me, man. Like you walk past that store. It makes me want to go in there every time. I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> but like all of those things were for and now like is all of that cared for in unboxing? Probably not. Holistically, I do think there is a thing, I want to say 2017, 2018, sometime around there. Um, I know as well, I was at Jet, this came out. It was like Pew Research, I think it was Pew, but it was a big national longitudinal study. They're talking about American like trends and preferences around like style and customer experience. And one of the things they talked about is that two out of three American households at that time, it's probably gone up since then, owned an Apple device. And the reason that I bring this up is that like, think about like the infusion of like design sensibility, ease of use, like just a raising of expectations across the board. And whether that's like on your computer, your phone, your music listening device, that kind of raising of expectations of the American consumer, and I would say the American customer, because all those people are corporate buyers too, mm-hmm. has created a really different and heightened sense of expectations around 
how easy is something to use? How intuitive is the interface? Like when I take this out of the box and plug it in, it's going to work seamlessly. And I don't want to put like all of this, you know, sort of burden or blessing on Apple, but I do think it's actually like a really seismic shift in how American consumers think about how they're going to interact with products, goods, or services. And that also didn't used to be true. And so you got this both shift in how people buy and sort of a broader shift in the market of like everything is beautiful and easy. And I would say 20 years ago, if you ask American consumers that, like they wouldn't have said that. You know, they were kind of like my my bar is like my cable provider, which probably sucks. <laughs> and James, I want I'm curious your thoughts here, but and then there was also almost the the Amazon component of they kind of set the standard for sure. purchasing and it online be super fast. Yeah, and and that's yeah, exa- yeah. You get the the speed element bar there also. Convenience, convenience, and it's almost everything I might want. And so there's kind of been over the last five to 10 years, unparalleled access at reasonable price points to almost everything really quickly. And it's well-designed and mm-hmm. like that's the backdrop. And then you're mm-hmm. someone selling yeah. to consumers now go. I mean, not, yeah. not what, one it, click purchase and it's, it's at your doorstep in two days. Plus it's changed Crazy. the way in which we like, in which we look at products too. Like when I go to a store, a retail store, anywhere, literally, I will always go to Amazon while I'm in the retail store to see if it's a better price or if it's a similar price that I can get shipped to me two days later. Well, <laughs> and... I go online and look at reviews while I'm in stores. Yeah, like, oh, exactly. One of them is better. It's changed the way that we've we've behaved as consumers because everything is so convenient there. The review process and having accessibility to the ideas of what people have with the products and their real life experiences with them. Like now Amazon has like these video reviews of people actually unpackaging the item, using it live. Mm-hmm. Like it's a whole different type of thing, right? There's two things. One of them, Liza, you mentioned, and I, I agree that I don't think it's this like mass amount of automation that's caused this problem. I think that one of the areas that I think is often forgot about, I think across organizations, many that I've talked to that I had, I consulted with for a very long time, I made a lot of money doing this (laughs) on the side for like as a consultant and most businesses don't, they just don't map out the journey and it's a problem. Um, I think that it needs to be an exercise that people go through. Uh, and I think that you mentioned that, Liza, is mapping out the journey and understanding the journey. It doesn't mean that you have to have every little detail figured out and every little detail like maximized to its like, you know, going to the phrases that I use, the crawl, walk, run. It doesn't mean you have to have it at the run phase, but you have to have an understanding and you have to document it. And I would say going maybe like a little bit more into the weeds is that I think a lot of people do map part of it, but they basically map up to purchase. It's like a romance novel that ends at the wedding and forgets the next 30 years of marriage as the real story. And I actually like this to me is one of those like obvious things to do that many companies don't do, which is like, think about, okay, the beginning of the relationship is the purchase. Now what happens in that customer journey. We did an interesting thing at Jet, which is we did like a very simple 
customer journey mapping where we just ask people with those like annoying smiley faces that they use at airports when it's like rate your experience. Yep. And we did it kind of like discovery offsite, searching on site, adding something to basket, um, waiting for your stuff to show up, unboxing, and then using whatever it is you got from us. We're just trying to get a sense of like emotional states of people. And it was super interesting and this is going now back five or six years, but basically like we in our heads were like, oh, it's very exciting when you're buying something. No, that's like super boring and kind of like, oh, this is just how I make the sausage is the finding of the thing. Like occasionally you get these like spikes of emotion when people like find a good price or find exactly the right product. But that was like pretty all like middle of the road, like the spike of excitement happened at unboxing. We're like, yeah, I got my stuff. And it caused us to really rethink about like where we put the emphasis on investing in customer experience because yeah, like that upfront piece has to be seamless and has to work. It's not the place that's emotionally fulfilling for the consumer. Now that's gonna be different in every company's customer journey work, but kind of understanding like what are the highs and lows for your consumer makes a huge, huge difference. And I think a lot of people kind of truncate that work and kind of feel like once the thing is like in the basket, our work here is done. You bring up a really good point, which was which was actually leading to the second point that I had, um, which is along these lines of, I call these sort of like unconventional moments or you, some people refer to them as a wow moment. And I, I think that the nitty gritty details of, figuring out where these wow moments should happen is like the best thing for you to do is like literally be a consumer and go buy a product and see what it's like, see how the whole experience is. And I know that that's like a single touch point. It's not like hundreds of products that are going out. So you could maybe get one bad apple out of the group, but ultimately like going back to what we were talking about too, is like when we mentioned like going through a retail store and you walk by like bath and body works and you smell that smell. Taking that to the unboxing is oftentimes I don't think thought about at a brand level. Like that is a brand touch point that can create emotion and connection to people. You know, so going back to the question you guys asked early on is like, what are some of the things we think about and how do we diligence things as um, investors? We often, when we're looking at consumer companies, that people will be like, oh, I'll send you stuff. And I'm like, no, no, I, I've already shopped on your site or I'm about to shop on your site. Like, I don't want the venture capital version of the experience, which I'm sure will be pristine. I want the consumer experience and I want lots of people from our team to do it. So it's not just like, oh, I live in New York and maybe their distribution center isn't so far, but really want to have the experience that the consumer is having. I mean, it's part of the reason why when we do B2B stuff because we can't necessarily sort of eat that dog food um, we talk to existing customers and prospects and traders because we're trying to recreate the experience we could have as a customer on the consumer side by talking to those folks. Um, I also have like a mantra which drives my team crazy because I was an operator for so long. I feel like venture capitalists must pay retail. Like it used to drive me crazy when our investors would ask for discounts. Sorry, the New York thing was. I'm just like, hey. Like, don't you understand you're eroding your own profit margin? Like, let me keep this. 
It's the same reason now when I'm like diligencing companies and they come up like a link that's a paid link. I never click on that because I think about the money. It is hilarious. I think about that too. And I like, I'm going to our own website and I search it on Google and then I get like the PPC is popping up first. I'm like, oh no, can't click that. Like gotta scroll down. Like Brian driving up our CAC. Look at this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think of people who understand that, who I'm like, oh, I'd never click on the paid link, except I will always do it for Amazon because of course they should pay. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so what, one more question for you. And I know James, you're, you're getting ready to cut me off because we're coming up on time here. I think that at least in like very simplistic and classical thinking, the vetting of an early stage opportunity is a lot about like product differentiation, right? I spent like, I know at least for me coming up in this experience, like everything was always about product differentiation. And when you shift to the B2C side of the coin, I feel like brand and brand value is almost spoken about like side by side or even sometimes above. And how do you think about that? I have a point of view on this and I will just always call out when this is my Liza Lansman rogue employee point of view and not necessarily like a broadly held view in the industry or at my fund, which is, I don't want to say anybody can build a brand because it's hard to build a brand, but building an early stage brand is actually not as hard because if you are a smart, thoughtful person, you can probably find at least some other humans who like, like the thing that you have built. And so it's very hard to tell when something is very small, whether like, oh, you, you found the other 5,000 people who dig this, but that's all there is. For me, early stage on consumer, outside of like the motherhood and apple pie stuff, like TAM and early velocity, like it's all about the team. And some of that is just, some of that is track record. Some of that is just my sense of like, it's, you guys know this, it's incredibly hard to build a company. Super, super hard. And building a sustainable company is that times 10. And the only thing that you can know for sure is going to be true is nothing is going to unfold the way you think it's going to. And so you're looking for people who have the intellectual horsepower and the emotional fortitude to overcome the 47 things that are going to go wrong or go differently than you think. So I, I sort of focus a little bit more on that. That said, it's almost like great brand is table stakes. If the brand is not, even if they're great people and the brand sucks or isn't getting resonance, then that's a deal killer to begin with. But I would say the other thing is we really do pay a lot of attention and diligence on the consumer side. Uh, like the way, like brand is, having a great brand is subjective, but like we will read like as many reviews as we can find. We will look at social media following like and the quality of the post, not just the quantity. Like if a brand gets like hacked or into trouble, we actually look at what people like are, is there a community that's like defending and advocating for it? Because really it's about the intensity of the love. Um, and that is really indicative to us. And I think so that's about quality of the experience. It's about the resonance of the brand. It's also about whether this brand has like thought about community and their customers. And does it make sense for every brand? 
to do that. But, you know, it's really interesting. We're investors in this company, Harper Wild, through our joint fund with CAA called Connect, uh, which is, I believe the correct term of art now is foundational garments, but they sell uh, bras and underwear. And they do really cool stuff. They do a lot of collabs. Um, they did a great thing where they're like donating money to Planned Parenthood after Dobbs. And they've done this before with these bras that say, fuck your laws. <laughs> I got them for everyone on my daughter's crew team. Like amazing. But like, it was super interesting because like, I don't even remember what the kerfuffle was, but at some point, like they did a capsule collection and like one or two trolls came out and was like saying something about like the woman who they did the collab with that was negative. And like their community rose up and was like so fierce in their love of Harper Wild and defending the brand and the collab. And it was amazing for us to see this because like the brand didn't have to say anything. Like their customers spoke up for them. And to me, that is about like the product, but the experience and the like ethos they created around that brand. So to that extent, brand really matters, but it matters because it creates true stickiness and loyalty with consumers. Sometimes that are bra they're brands that are super cool, but are very transient in the hearts of consumers. And that's super hard to suss out in early stage, I will freely admit. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you. It's It's why I think Brian liked me so much to bring me on is because like that's like my mo <laughs> like, I, in the hearts and minds of consumers i don't know why but like it's it's a big thing that i i do i believe in those wow moments and creating the stickiness with customers because i think that marketing should be responsible for how the brand is perceived and portrayed um all the way through post-purchase as well and i think that it is our responsibilities as marketers to figure that out and make sure that we are naturally, and I say naturally because it can't be like gamified, creating community amongst the customers yes. that they feel like there's a safe place to be themselves and express I that. Think when I was first joining E-Trade, um, the CFO, who I later became super close with, but was like very skeptical about marketing when I was being interviewed was like, well, marketing is basically just advertising and like, that's all discretionary spending. I was like, well, that's a, that's like the piece above the waterline of the iceberg of what marketing does. I was like, but honestly, marketing answers one question and one question only, which is what do we want people to believe is true about us? And there are lots of different ways you have to answer that question. And some are in product and some are in experience and some are in like the artifacts you produce in creative. But like unified marketing does that really well. And it's one of the things that's super interesting as you as we've like moved more into the digital space. I used to have one rule for my teams, which is everything we say about ourselves has to be true. That seems like it's obvious, but that has not been the history of classical marketing. Um, and I think in a world where the like space and the time between the click and the experience is nanoseconds, customers are really good at sussing out when you're bullshitting. And so forgetting about the morality of it for a moment, it's just really capital inefficient to BS your <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's a mic drop right there, Liza. Um, we are at time. 
we appreciate you coming on the show and joining us today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Great seeing you guys. If you have not yet subscribed to Spamming Zero, please do so. Give us a review. Let us know what you think and reach out to Brian and I if you want a topic on the show that we have not yet covered. Anything goes. You know, for a second, I thought you were saying that to me, like I should subscribe. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I should totally do that. You definitely <laughs> should, Liza. You should, I mean, I we, 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 again, this is me being like keeping my MO. Like you are a, a customer in this particular moment, right? Like on our show. So here's my, my sticky moment for you as I don't require you as the guest to do anything. You, if you want to subscribe, great. We, we would highly recommend that, but we're not going to require you to do it because we think it should come naturally. I love it. I also like the hand selling in this moment. So I'm super into it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Thanks for joining us this week. Stay tuned for the next one. <laughs>